Okay, I think I will start. Um, welcome to the University of Edinburgh, to the Talbot Rice Gallery. My name's Stana Nenadich. I'm in the School of History and Classics here at Edinburgh University. And I've been organizing during the course of this year a series of lunchtime public seminars on the subject of enlightenment and popular culture. And these have been advertised by little cards like this. And this is the last of the set of three for this semester, the autumn semester, that we've had this year. Today, I am very, very pleased to be able to introduce um, Dr. Stephen Lloyd from the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, who, um, unusual in this series, is going to talk in this particular venue. We have not used this venue, which is a, a wonderful location to talk about enlightenment and popular culture and to give us an illustrated lecture where the, le the illustration is indeed the pictures around us. And these are the pictures associated with an exhibition that has been co-curated by Stephen from the Portrait Gallery and a colleague here at Edinburgh University, Dr. V uh, Vicky Coltman. And I hope you will linger after the lecture to look at the exhibition, and I hope you'll also purchase the catalogue, which is this, Henry Rayburn and his printmakers, retailing for the princely sum of 6.95 in this institution, and also available in the National Galleries. Now, Stephen um, has been here in Edinburgh for a number of years. Um, particularly well known for his exhibition on the Regency painters Richard and Maria Cosway, which was based on his own doctoral thesis of some years ago, and in more recent times for his work on uh, Skirving, one of the contemporary uh, portrait artists of Rayburn. Um, Stephen has also been known for a certain amount of controversy in recent times, quite unusual I mean, in, amongst Scottish art establishment because it was Stephen who wrote initially, just earlier this year I think, about the um, identity of the artist of the very famous painting, The Skating Minister. And I think that controversy got into the national press. So I don't think we are going to have a, such a controversial presentation today, but nevertheless Stephen today is going to talk about well, I will say what the full title is. Painters and poets are always poor, and I am no exception to this general description. Henry Rayburn and his patrons. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you very much, Donna, for that uh, kind uh, introduction. Uh, on before I just start the uh, talk, uh, which will refer to a number of the portraits and prints on show uh, in the exhibition around us, um, I should just, uh, I would like to really thank a colleague at the National for our generosity in sharing archival information about uh, as the, the patrons. It goes without saying that much work needs to be done on patronage with respect to and Edinburgh at this period. But this talk will hopefully shed some light on this area, and I, which, will hope will, uh, which I hope will contextualize and help us understand Rayburn's artistic production in Edinburgh during the late Georgian and Regency periods. And a key to understanding and comprehending Rayburn's position is the importance of friendship and sociability, as I hope to demonstrate. 
June 1823, just four weeks before Rayburn's unexpected death, one of his oldest friends, Dr. Andrew Duncan Sr., a preeminent physician in Edinburgh, then in his 80th year, visited the artist in his studio in York Place. I called at his painting, painting rooms after concluding the business I had allotted for the day. After he had finished his business, we walked together to Leith Links. There removed from the smoke of the city of Edinburgh, we conjoined with pleasing conversation, a trial of skill as at a salutary and interesting exercise to which we had both a strong attachment. After their round of golf, they enjoyed a temperate meal at the hall of the Honourable Company of Golfers, of which both men were long-standing members, and in whose dining room hung at least two lively portraits of golfers by Rayburn. And one of the messages, uh, one of the engravings after one of those portraits of Balfour's show in this exhibition. A few months later, Andrew Duncan recalled that summer day of healthful and manly exercise with great warmth and affection, as he remembered his recently deceased friend. When he gave the address at the annual dinner of the Harveyan Society of Edinburgh, of which Duncan was the founder, and Rayburn had been an associate member for many years. This society, which still meets to this day, celebrates the achievement of the renowned British 17th century physician, William Harvey, who discovered the circulation of the blood. Andrew's, Andrew Duncan's address was published in Edinburgh and London during April 1824 as a tribute of regard to the memory of Sir Henry Rayburn, RA, portrait painter to the King for Scotland. On the title page, Andrew Duncan listed his, his own achievements, including his position as first physician to the King for Scotland and as father of the Royal College of Physicians. And he was also professor of medicine at the university. Rayburn's great friend was indeed a notable figure in Scottish medicine. He was not only a pioneer of psychiatry in Scotland by establishing an asylum for the insane uh, in Edinburgh, remembered to this day in the Andrew Duncan Clinic at the Royal Edinburgh Hospital, but who also pioneered free medicine for the poor through his foundation of the Royal Dispensary in Edinburgh. In his tribute of regard to Rayburn, Andrew Duncan effectively made the case for himself as a key patron or supporter in both the artist's early career and as it developed later. He recalled that in 1778, he commissioned from Rayburn, who was then apprenticed to the old town goldsmith, James Gilliland, a memorial brooch set with a lock of hair from the head of Charles Darwin, a brilliant young medical of Andrew Duncan's and the son of Erasmus Darwin, famous botanist, who had died suddenly. On the front of the trinket, Duncan recalled that Rayburn made a tiny picture of a muse weeping over an urn, which is since untraced. Andrew Duncan also stated he was instrumental in commissioning three oil portraits from Rayburn at the beginning of his career as an oil painter. Of the golfer, William Ingalls, of the surgeon Alexander Wood, and of Andrew Duncan himself. So 
So already one can see the importance for Rayburn's developing career within the nexus of male Edinburgh society, the, the professions such as medicine and later law and academia, which merge together with the with, within the highly clubbable social and sporting milieu active in the city. Further on in his tribute, Andrew Duncan claimed to have played an important role in securing the commissions for Rayburn to paint three of the key figures in the building of the Robert Adam designed Old College, where we are today in the University of Edinburgh. These three portraits were the, the city's Lord Provost, Thomas Elder, which uh, is on show elsewhere in Old College, the famous moral philosopher, Professor Adam Ferguson, who you see here on, the, on my left, as well as of the principal of the university, the Reverend Dr. William Robertson, who you can see at the end of this gallery. Andrew Duncan then went on to describe the remarkable visual impact of these and other portraits by the artist. For Rayburn was not more successful in taking a striking likeness than in giving to it the most flattering aspect with all the spirit of the original. And it has been justly said of his pictures that they were the men themselves, starting from the canvas. When discussing Rayburn's career, it would be a mistake to think of patronage in terms of a single rich patron or a family or a court controlling the development of his, of his career in, the res in respect of, say, much artistic practice during the European Renaissance and Baroque periods. As has been demonstrated recently by the art historians Marcia Poynton and David Solkin, among others, the art world in Britain during the 18th century was dominated by the production of portraiture by artists operating competitive businesses within a developing social milieu and economic markets, constantly prone to the vicissitudes of fashion and style. After Rayburn's return to Edinburgh in late 1786 from his two-year stay in Rome, he rapidly established himself in a new town studio in George Street as the leading young portraitist in Edinburgh. And over the next 36 years until his death, Rayburn painted over 1,000 portraits in oil on canvas, a prolific business that, is, that at his death was worth around 3,000 pounds per annum. Even after his death, there was a considerable backlog of unfinished portraits by the artist that needed completing. Andrew Duncan noted in his tribute, I have been informed by an ingenious young artist, Mr. John Syme, who has been employed to finish Sir Henry's pictures, that he does not expect to be able to accomplish that undertaking in less than three or four years. Rayburn's clientele was to a very large extent composed of the Scottish professional classes and their families, the legal, academic, and mercantile elites, combined with the landed gentry and lairds, in addition to sections of the Greek aristocracy. A number of Scottish families remained especially loyal to Rayburn over the decades, and one might mention the Dundas, Ingalls, Walker of Edmonton, Kennedy of Junior, Forbes of Pitsligo, and the Shaw Stewart families, among others, who provided considerable work for the artist throughout his career. Families such as these may be described as, as particularly important clients 
of Rayburn rather than patrons. Of particular significance to the relaunch of Rayburn's career after his return from Italy was the sustained uh, commissions uh, over the following decade, the 1790s, from one particular family, the Fergusons of Wraith. And this series of at least 10 painted portraits included some of the artist's most experimental uh, pictures of the late 1780s and early 1790s. William Ferguson of Wraith had recently inherited a substantial fortune and the Scottish estate in Fife from his uncle. Rayburn's portrait of him, probably painted in 1787, shows him in a fairly conventional seated three-quarter length pose uh, with his youngest son, William, very much in the style of these academic portraits which you see here in the gallery. In the same year, Rayburn painted an ambitious full-length uh, portrait of, Ferguson's, of William Ferguson's wife, Jean Crawford, who was sister-in-law of the Earl of Dumfries, together with two, uh, her two youngest children, William and Beatrice. And as Francina Irwin has indicated in her important article on Rayburn's early work, published in the Burlington Magazine in 1974, some of Rayburn's portraits of this day still portray the strong pictorial influence of British portraitist Joshua Reynolds and his compositions. In his tribute, Andrew Duncan also placed emphasis on Reynolds as the key, as another key patron of Rayburn in the early part of his career. Duncan stated that Rayburn went to London, presumably in the early 1780s, or en route out to Italy in 1784 to spend time Joshua Reynolds' studio in London. He continued, Duncan continued, he, Rayburn, had sufficient ambition to think that as a portrait painter in oil colours, he might imitate the noble example of Sir Joshua Reynolds. And Reynolds may have also provided further encouragement for Rayburn to go out to Rome to further his artistic studies. Although the highly influential Scottish history painter and archaeologist Gavin Hamilton, who was long resident in, in Rome, was undoubtedly Scottish artists, including Rayburn. These artists usually received patronage from wealthy members of Scottish society to travel out to Italy. Andrew Duncan continued in the tribute to draw parallels between the careers of Reynolds and Rayburn noting their similar genius and talents, their enjoyment of literary company in London and Edinburgh, respectively, and, of course, the royal appro approbation of their knighthoods. A few years later, William Ferguson commissioned Rayburn to paint two portraits of his eldest son, Robert. In the famous painting known as The Archers, now in the National Gallery in London, Rayburn produced one of his most radical and original compositions in which the principal sitter is shown in profile, extending the bow while his younger brother is daringly shown in shadow behind the bow and arrow of his brother. In contrast, the full-length portrait of the older brother, Robert Ferguson, is painted with great energy and economy to create a modern image of great vitality and alertness, as epitomized in the rapidly, hunting, uh, the rapidly painted hunting dog in the foreground. And two years later, William Ferguson commissioned Rayburn to paint an ambitious full-length portrait of his second son, Ronald, standing beside his horse within a dramatically lit composition 
Ronald Ferguson was a noted soldier, later becoming a, a general, but he was here he was probably painted when he was Lieutenant Colonel of the 84th Regiment and about to travel out to India. The patterns of Rayburn's patronage from key families in Scotland can be contrasted with the activities of two leading artists who were active in Edinburgh during the second half of the 1790s. Archibald Skirving was an outstanding pastelist who was both admired by Rayburn and indeed called the Rayburn in crayons by a London critic in the Morning Post in 1812. Extremely eccentric by nature and in his working practices, most unusually, Skirving declined to have a showroom next to his studio room in Edinburgh. And he was known to demand up to 50 sittings from his, uh, from his clients. This did not deter some patient sitters, such as the judge Alexander Fraser Teitler, Lord Woodhouseley, who sat to Skirving frequently in 1798, the eyes being the last elements of the pastel to be completed. Fraser Teitler went on to commission a number of pastels from Skirving of various members of his family. This artist was notorious for his unpredictability and famously ordered the society beauty Lady Caroline Campbell out of his studio for continually bringing her husband and lapdog to the artist's studio, thus disrupting the artist's concentration. Similarly, one of the most influential aristocrats of the day in Scotland, Henry III, Duke of Buccleuch, was turned away from Skirving's studio for not having previously made an appointment to visit. By contrast to the socially awkward and slow-working Skirving, the French émigré artist Henri-Pierre Danlou, by force of circumstance and necessity, worked hard to gain commissions and occasionally adapted his academic style, French style of painting, to suit uh, his new uh, clients in Britain. During the course of a number of extended visits to Edinburgh from his main studio in London during the second half of the 1790s, uh, he used his aristocratic connections with the exiled French court of the Comte d'Artois, later Charles X of France, at the Palace of Holyrood House, to gain a series of major portrait commissions from Henry III, Duke of Buccleuch, and his wife, the Duchess Elizabeth Montague. As the surviving letters and bills indicate, the Buccleuchs clearly acted as the major patron of Donlou while he was in Scotland, but also in London, where they were well-connected at court. At least 15 oil portraits of the Duke and Duchess, their family and retainers, were commissioned and painted within the space of five years. Returning to Andrew Duncan's memorial address about Rayburn to the 1824 meeting of the Harveyan Society, it is significant that its publication was dedicated to another great friend of Andrew Duncan and of the artist Rayburn, namely Gilbert Innes of Stowe, 1751, his birth, 1832, his death. All three men were keen golfers and members of the Royal Company of Archers, the King's bodyguard in Scotland. Innes was not only an extremely important friend of Rayburn's, but he was a key financial supporter and advisor of the artists over the last two decades of his life, especially during times of great financial difficulty for the artist. <clears throat> Innes was a banker, well known in his own day, but hitherto obscure. 
However, he is one of the most fascinating, significant, and cultured figures active in Scotland during the late Georgian Regency period. Um, and we know what he, his appearance is um, from a marble bust that survives at the Royal Highland and Agricultural Society at Ingleston to the west of Edinburgh, uh, copied after a, a lost original marble bust made by the, the young Scottish sculptor Thomas Campbell. Gilbert Innes is a figure that has slipped through the historical net, despite the fact that a major part of his extensive business and personal papers are preserved in the National Archives of Scotland. His father, George, was second and then first cashier of the Royal Bank of Scotland between 1745 and 1780. Having made his wealth from managing sequestered Jacobite estates as deputy receiver general of Scotland, George Innes himself purchased an estate at Stowe in Peeblesshire. His son Gilbert, who later became a deputy lieutenant of Midlothian, while the Lord Lieutenant was Henry III, Duke of Buccleuch, he also became, Gilbert Innes also became a director of the Royal Bank of Scotland in 1787, and seven years later was appointed as deputy governor of the Royal Bank, a post he held until his death. And the governor of the Royal Bank until his death in 1812 was the, the, the third Duke of Buccleuch. In 1793, with the onset of a national financial crisis caused by the declaration of war by France on Britain, Innes distinguished himself by traveling to London to plead successfully with the Pitt government for a loan of four million pounds to the Scottish banks to save Scotland's economy. Innes himself died intestate and is said to have left over one million pounds in cash, worth over 40 million pounds today. And he also left a very large number of illegitimate children, 67 at the last count. Innes, whose Edinburgh town house was in St Andrew's Square, adjacent to the Royal Bank of Scotland's headquarters, was not only a friend of artists, most notably of Rayburn, but he was also the committed patron of the talented Scottish sculptor Thomas Campbell. Innes was an avid collector of fine and decorative arts for his various houses, and he purchased artworks regularly from auctions in Edinburgh. Additionally, he was deeply involved in the elite networks that comprised and controlled Edinburgh's cultural life, and was closely, closely involved in the building of the second Newtown in Edinburgh. Innes was a key personality in the Highland and Agricultural Society as its treasurer. He was closely associated with the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, and he was a major financial supporter of Edinburgh's Musical Society, based at St. Cecilia's Hall in the Old Town, which, which brought leading European professional singers and musicians to perform with the music-playing amateurs of Edinburgh's polite society. The first documented connection between Rayburn and Innes occurred in a letter from the artist to the banker from Rayburn Studio at York Place on the 18th of November, 1803, in which Rayburn writes that, I have, I have got back the head again painted by Rembrandt, which I had given to Mr. Fletcher, and beg you will accept of it from me as a small token of my esteem and regard. While it is not clear what the subject of this painting was, or indeed whether it was, was by Rembrandt, let alone who Mr. Fletcher was, this letter is of significance in that it reveals Rayburn to have been a collector 
of old master paintings, if only on a very small scale. The fact that he was prepared to give a painting by such a revered old master to Innes indicates that Rayburn already knew Innes well and may have wanted to add to the banker's art collection with a timely gift that may have been in return for financial advice or services offered to the artist. Many artists based in London during the 18th century and early 19th century formed important collections of old master paintings, prints, and drawings, as well as sculpture and objets d'art. One might cite artists such as Jonathan Richardson, Thomas Hudson, Sir Joshua Reynolds, Sir Robert Strange, Benjamin West, Nathaniel Hone, Richard Cosway, Sir John Soane, and Sir Thomas Lawrence. These artists use their collections both as a study tool for understanding pictorial compositions and painting techniques, which often involved restoration, as in the case of Reynolds and Cosway, but also they acted as suitable decoration for their fashionable studios and for projecting the image of the artist as a gentleman and connoisseur. Paintings by well-known old masters could also be sold by these artists to their key clients and patrons at a handsome profit. Further light on Rayburn's collecting habits and attitude uh, to old master paintings is found four years later in a letter from the artist to Gilbert Innes, sent from York Place uh, on the 11th of December, 1807, in which the artist announced that he is sending as a gift a painting by Guido, i.e. Guido Reni, the 17th century Italian Baroque painter. Rayburn wishes that the subject matter had been more pleasing, but considers the picture to be one of the best specimens of the art of the master and one of the best pictures in Scotland. He continued, the vulgar and rude form of the executioner with the atrocity of his expression and, and action, having put the bloody knife with which he was flaying the saint into his mouth while he stops to tie him up a little faster is admirably contrasted with the elegant form and calm resignation of the martyr. I think it is a picture of the first rate but I shall never be able to form a collection myself. And one solitary picture in my possession is not worth keeping. You have already two or three very good pictures, and this will add to your collection. And Rayburn continues, I could have wished to have shown my gratitude for what is already past, under circumstances less equivocal. That time, I hope, is yet coming. But I call heaven to witness it has been my intention to send you this picture for a long time past. But I hesitated whether I should send it as it is or cover up the arm. I now think it better to let you have it as it came from the hand of the master. And after you, and after you have had it for some time in this state, if you wish, afterward, I will paint the arm as like the other one, as I can, or paint it as covered with a cloth and do it with some paint that will wash off again as required. That's a fascinating account of a very early restoration of a painting, um, which in particular refers to the reversibility of painting techniques, um, which is still done to this day. This painting has remained untraced to this day. However, the subject must be the martyrdom of St. Bartholomew, who was flayed alive. And Guido Reni is known to have painted such a subject. Uh, this was formerly in the collections of, the, of Queen Christina of Sweden 
and then there's the famous Orléans collection in France. And much of the Orléans collection was sold in London during the 1790s. So it is conceivable that Rayburn may have bought this painting uh, at that time. Rayburn's financial crisis had been brewing for some time. Just over a year earlier, on the 6th of November, 1807, Rayburn had written to Innes, listing the values of his assets. Apart from his studio and valuable property in Leith, his properties at St. Bernard's in Stockbridge were valued at 12,000 pounds. Rayburn writes, I will also endeavor instantly to raise some money upon some other part of my property. And if I am successful, it will principally go to lessen my engagements, i.e. loans, with the bank, i.e. the Royal Bank. Rayburn then asked Innes to renew his current loans with the bank. The artist signed off the letter, believe me with a full sense of the obligation I am under to you. Two months earlier, in a letter from Rayburn to Innes, dated the 12th of October, 1807, the artist had reacted to Innes's concerns that Rayburn's son-in-law, Daniel Veer of Stonebuyers, was guaranteeing the transactions of Henry Rayburn and Company to the bank, to the Royal Bank, to the extent of 20,000 pounds. Finally, despite the best efforts of Rayburn's family and friends, loans from the banks and support in particular from Innes, the pressure on Rayburn's company and personal finances became impossible. This company went, went bust and Rayburn was declared bankrupt in the Edinburgh Gazette on the 12th of January, 1808. The debts were over 36,000 pounds against credits of just under 30,000 pounds, leaving after adjustments an outstanding debt of just over 14,000 pounds. Innes was one of the commissioners upon the estate of Henry Rayburn and company, who assisted in the offer of a composition to satisfy his creditors. To raise capital, the artist sold his studio in York Place, but, but retained a lifelong lease. And from 1811, he and his, uh, he and his son, Henry Rayburn Jr., began viewing his land in Stockbridge as a fashionable property development, Rayburnville, as it was then known, to the northwest of the new town, now, of course, Stockbridge. And I should just say what the, this business was, Henry Rayburn and Company, uh, we're still beginning to work out what this was, but certainly Rayburn, as well as being a portrait, being known as a portrait painter in Edinburgh, was known as an underwriter in Edinburgh, obviously involved in marine shipping insurance. He owned ships, and the company was also involved in the West India merchant trade out of their offices in Leith, in the citadel of Leith. Innes not only sat to Rayburn for a portrait, Gilbert Innes, which was presented in 1834 after Innes's death by his sister Jane to the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, and sadly it is since untraced, but, uh, and, uh, but also in October 1808, Gilbert Innes paid the artist 30 guineas for his portrayal of William Simpson, who was cashier to the Royal Bank, and this portrait survives uh, in their collection. In July 1821, Gilbert Innes was approached by Andrew Duncan, Dr. Andrew Duncan Sr., to contribute to an association which was being formed for commemorating the reign of George III. Andrew Duncan suggested that a portrait of the late king by Rayburn should be hung in the public library of the University of Edinburgh, quote, to which he, the late king, George III, 
had been a most liberal benefactor, and the portrait was to cost 300 pounds. It is not clear whether this project ever succeeded, as the painting is not known to have been commissioned, but this letter would appear to be further evidence of Rayburn's old friends attempting to support him by engineering a highly prestigious commission. And it's perhaps no accident that a year later, Rayburn was knighted by George IV during his famous visit to Edinburgh. And Rayburn was also made appointed King's Limner for Scotland. Innes's friendship with Rayburn should be seen in the context of Innes's voracious and diverse collecting, not only on the Edinburgh art market, but also in London and on the continent via a network of agents. Countless receipts survive in the Innes papers that record the banker's constant spending on adorning his various properties, St Andrew's Square, at Stowe, and at uh, the Drum in Gilmerton. He acquired books, paintings, prints, jewelry, porcelain, glass, music, furniture, miniatures, enamels, and scientific instruments. One might, one might cite just a sample of these bills to provide some idea of the range of Innes's wide-ranging collecting activities. In 1789, he spent over 145 pounds on buying paintings from the sale of the late Walter Ross, a lawyer who used to live in St. Bernard's house in Stockbridge, which Rayburn bought from Ross's widow in 1809 as his family house for the rest of his life. In 1797, Innes spent 37 pounds buying sundries at the sale in Edinburgh of the effects of the late painter David Allen. And in the same year, Innes spent 107 pounds at the sale in Edinburgh of the late portrait painter George Willison, including portraits, drawings, prints, busts, Wedgwood, and Tassie cameos. And in 1804, Innes paid the miniaturist D. Brownell Murphy 100 guineas for portraits in enamel of members of the Stuart dynasty to decorate uh, a cabinet. And in 1804 to 5, Innes purchased casts and frames from John Henning, the neoclassical portrait modeler from Paisley, but then based in Edinburgh. And further researches in the Innes papers will provide much information on the state of the art market in Edinburgh during the later 18th and early 19th century. Rayburn also looked to Innes for advice when it came to dealing with the endless petitioning of him by boys who wanted to become painters. In a letter from Rayburn to Innes of the 28th of November, 1822, the artist referred to a Thomas Kerr, or Carr, the son of a tailor on the, on, who lived at Nine College Street, who was intending to become a painter and who was most likely soliciting a testimonial in support of an application to study at the Trustees Academy. Rayburn wrote to Innes, who was uh, himself very involved in the Trustees Academy, will you have the goodness to look at this boy's drawings? Considering his age, I think they promise well. You know how I am besieged by these young people and often know not how to do. Clearly, Rayburn had long been generous in his support and encouragement of young artists. Two of these young men who aspired to be artists, who passed through Rayburn's studio just after 1800, went on to become two of the uh, leading artists in London. Uh, the portrait miniaturist, Andrew Robertson, uh, who dominated, uh, who was the, the London 
uh, world of miniature painting up until his death in 1845, and the uh, genre painter, portrait painter, and history painter, Sir David Wilkie, uh, who had a glittering career in London over the next four decades. And these two artists remained great friends and admirers of Rayburn until his death. But I shall end with an intriguing discovery among the Innes papers. Apart from Rayburn himself, one of Innes's greatest friends and lifelong correspondents was William Grant of Congleton, born 1750, died 1821. Born into a wealthy landed family in East Lothian, Grant, who trained as an advocate in Edinburgh, went to London where he practiced as a barrister. As a fashionable young man in the metropolis, he sat for his portrait on a number of occasions, including a miniature portrait miniature by George Engelhart and a head and shoulders oil painting by George Romney. And we know from a letter from Grant in London to Innes back in Edinburgh that he was uh, looking at the portrait market in London and had discounted, already discounted Nathaniel Dance and Gainsborough uh, for, because they were too expensive. Grant also sat, uh, perhaps for this very reason of cost, to Gilbert Stuart, a young American painter of Scottish descent who had spent part of his youth in, in Scotland and who was emerging, Stuart, who was emerging as a brilliant protege of one of the leading American history painters in London, Benjamin West. And the painting that Stuart produced is now an icon of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. And it shows, it's a brilliantly original and broadly painted full-length portrait of William Grant of Congleton skating on the frozen serpentine pond in Hyde Park, London. And it caused a popular and critical sensation when it was exhibited at the Royal Academy's summer show in 1782. Critics noted its modern charm, enchantment, gracefulness and elegance, quote, reposed, animated, and well-drawn, as one reviewer put it. Five years later, on the 1st of December, 1787, Grant, William Grant in London, wrote to Gilbert Innes at his house in St. Andrew's Square, Edinburgh. I have sometimes threatened you with the deposit of two large pictures, and one of them, the skating figure, is actually packed up and will be shipped to your address in a day or two. The other I will try to dispose of as it, is well, as, as it is not well calculated for the meridian of Edinburgh or for the house of a modest man such as you are. The reason of this sudden movement respecting the pictures is that Stuart the painter in whose house they were is broke and gone off to Dublin and all his goods sold by auction. I have only to request that you will not, for your own sake, as well as mine, make me a public exhibition, but lodge me in the most retired corner of your house, allowing me only a little light and air for the benefit of my complexion. If you find me in the least encumbrance, I assure you of an early removal. So, one can assume that this famous painting arrived in the heart of Edinburgh in early 1788, to be hung up in the townhouse of one of the city's leading bankers and cultural figures. And it seems highly likely that select artists, such as Rayburn, may have been able to 
to, view, to see this modern masterpiece by a young artist that had stunned the sophisticated metropolitan critics in London, including Horace Walpole. It is not hard to realize the impact of such a lively performance of portrait painting on Rayburn, recently returned from Italy. Perhaps viewing and studying this arresting yet informal portrait of a gentleman exercising, painted by Stuart, as seen in Edinburgh in 1788, had more of an effect on Rayburn and his rapidly modern style of portrait painting than all the old master paintings and antique statues he had seen in Rome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen, for uh, a fascinating uh, lecture and some tantalizing details there. And I think this is called research in progress, isn't it, very much so. Um, we've got a certain amount of time for questions, about a quarter of an hour. We will stop very um, much on the half hour to allow people to go on um, to, to other engagements. Um, and, and can I ask you to wait for your questions until you have the microphone because these lectures are being recorded and they are available subsequently as podcasts on the web and they are remarkably successful as podcasts. So the first question for Dr. Lloyd. Question for Dr. Lloyd. You refer to the painting of the skater and the controversy which you uh, had been aroused. There was a, a, a television program about it as well and there they made the um, point that from the Rayburn papers it could be seen that a painting similar, so we say, given what you just said, but very like that had been in Rayburn's position for some time and was, was by Rayburn. And I wondered if you'd had any thoughts on it. I'm not quite sure the, the tenor of your question. Um, there's no evidence that uh, with the Gilbert Stewart skater that uh, apart from this letter from uh, from Grant in London to Innes in Edinburgh. There's no evidence, uh, further evidence, about its location yet. I mean, I'm sure this will come up in the Innes papers, and also there are many, many letters to Grant that have uh, still not been worked on. I mean, they were very, very close friends, Innes and Grant, I mean, over a period of about 40 or 50 years. So one assumes that the painting of the skater, the famous uh, painting of the skater by Gilbert Stuart, was displayed in St. Andrew's Square. Whether it was in a retired corner or not, we don't know, whether, Innes was, uh, whether Grant was joking in the letter. Um, but because of Innes's later friendship with, um, with Rayburn, one, I think it's fair to speculate that Rayburn would have had access to view that painting. Um, when that would have been, we don't know. Um, the first um, letter uh, between um, Innes and Rayburn is 1803. This is the letter about the Rembrandt um, uh, and the gift um, from uh, Rayburn to, to Innes of this head by Rembrandt. 
but it clearly indicates that they knew each other and, and knowing the, the interlocking circles of uh, Edinburgh's society, uh, it's, it's highly likely that Innes and Rayburn would have known each other, um, whether not necessarily well, but they'd have certainly been aware of each other. I mean, Rayburn himself was a member of the Royal Company of Archers, along with um, Innes and uh, Andrew Duncan, uh, that's the, uh, the monarch's bodyguard in Scotland. Um, but of course, one can also say that one also has to perhaps um, imagine that that painting of, um, of the skater, of William Grant, would, was probably commissioned um, by Grant himself when he was in London, and possibly Innes was, the, was also involved in the commission because of this, le these, this letter about the portraitists with Gainsborough. So one also has to assume that this painting uh, at some point would have gone back to William Grant's um, house uh, in East Lothian at Congleton. We don't know when that, when that was. More research needs to be done on that. Um, we also don't know uh, which other artists would have seen the painting. Um, and certainly if Rayburn, uh, one imagines that Rayburn would have had access to it partly because of his friendship with Innes, um, which one assumes goes back into the 1790s, it's, it's only fair to suggest that other artists would have seen it. Other artists resident in Edinburgh, such as Alexander Naismith, David Allen, uh, before, the, and before his death in 1797, uh, uh, and Archibald Skirving, and also possibly Henri-Pierre Danlou, who we know, the émigré artist who was resident in Edinburgh uh, intermittently between 1796 and 1800. Um, and of course, it is tantalizing uh, to, to imagine what, if Don Lu had seen this painting, what he would have made, it, made of it. Um, so uh, my research, obviously, on the skating minister is, is well known and has been published. Um, but uh, at the moment, I really don't have anything more to add to, to, the, to that research, uh, apart from what, what was in the TV program in the summer. Uh, from your lecture, I gather that uh, Rayburn was, in modern terms, quite an entrepreneur. Um, was this the, the cause of his bankruptcy, or was it just pure extravagance on his part? Thank you. We don't, we still, the research on Rayburn's financial position is still, in, is still ongoing, and we still don't know why Henry Rayburn and company got into such terrible difficulties in 1807, 1808. There's a huge amount of documentation in the National Archives about the bankruptcy, and of course that was made public, and the whole business of the, the rescheduling of the debts and the satisfying of the creditors uh, is well documented. In fact, the, 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 the debts weren't finally re, uh, paid off until the 1870s by the Rayburn family. We know at one point in the 1807, and this appears in the Rayburn Innes correspondence, that the family, that particularly the son, Henry Rayburn Jr., who seems to have had a, a, a key role in the, in the company, were trying to sell a ship, the Isabella Simpson, that they owned, and they were finding it very difficult to sell this ship. And it was this that uh, was the catalyst for the actual bankruptcy, uh, for the closure of the firm. Um, it, it is extremely interesting, um, uh, Rayburn's uh, role as a businessman. He is both a portrait painter in Edinburgh, but he's also, an, uh, he is described as, a, as an underwriter in Edinburgh. And Rayburn is a man of many parts. He, uh, 
He is, we know he's a painter, he's a, he's a, he's a sculptor, he's a, he, he, he uh, makes ship models, he's, he's very uh, creative in different ways. I mean, he's uh, deeply involved in Edinburgh society, he's a member of many clubs as so many uh, leading figures were. Um, but it's the, it's the business involvement which is interesting. Uh, I mean, his portrait business is, is quite substantial, but he still feels the need to get involved with uh, insurance. I mean, he's a member of the, he's a director of, of the Caledonian Insurance Company for two years in the early 1800s. He has a, an overdraft with the Bank of Scotland, a facility of 600 pounds running from the mid 1790s. He's also a shareholder in the Bank of Scotland. So he's deeply enmeshed in the, the, the financial and business networks. His wife is wealthy, and it's her land in Stockbridge that they later develop into Rayburnville. And she has, interestingly, these need to be worked on. She has, through her family, she has very interesting business connections to the Edgar family, who uh, have big interests in the West Indies. Um, so this may partly explain why he goes into... Uh, Henry Rayburn Jr. is involved in the West India merchant trade um, and why they have their, their business based in Leith. Um, but at the moment, where it's, uh, it's, it's still it's an area that would will, will reward um, much work, uh, you know, would much research. The other thing, the final thing to say really is the, the property development in, in Stockbridge. Um, there's been an excellent, there's an excellent chapter in the new recent book by Connie Byram on the gardens of Edinburgh's new town. And if anyone's interested in, in the uh, history of the developing, the fewing and developing of, of, St of Stockbridge, as it was earlier known as Rayburnville, I do very strongly recommend that you uh, look at that book. It was published last year. Stephen, can, can I ask a question which really relates to the exhibition around us um, and I think would be of interest to hear a little bit more about, and that is the prints after Rayburn. So we, we have examples of great and very notable um, portraits which are connected with the university, um, but there are also these prints that are for a wider audience and are sold commercially, and Rayburn presumably has a hand in the production of, of prints? Print, uh, printmaking for Rayburn is, is, as Stana has, has just said, is extremely important for disseminating his, the rep, his own reputation, but also the, the knowledge to a broader audience of his, of, his, uh, of his oil portraits, which of course by their very nature are commissioned and, and go into one place. Uh, to the home or the institution of the commissioner, whether it's an individual or whether it's the university or whether it's the faculty of advocates or it's the, uh, the Royal Company of Archers. There are any number of locations which, which are generally private or semi-private locations. So, and at this point, certainly in the earlier part of Rayburn's career from the late 1780s up until the early 1800s, there's nowhere in Edinburgh really for a space or a place for public exhibition of portraits un or paintings or art, unlike the Royal Academy in London, which of course has the summer exhibition uh, running from its foundation in the late 1760s. The first time that the, there's an opportunity for public exhibition of artworks in Edinburgh is from 1808 with the foundation of the Associated Society of Artists, which is a, a forerunner of the Royal Scottish Academy, which of course isn't founded till 1826. And interestingly, the Associated Society of Artists exhibit 
in Rayburn's studio at 32 York Place in Edinburgh. That's really a preamble to talk about the to talk about the uh, the the prints. These are mezzotints, mainly half tint uh, from the Italian tonal engravings. They're also line engravings, which where the copper plate is actually engraved with a burin, and also stipple engravings, which is uh, engravings made with the uh, dotted technique of uh, uh, that you particularly see in the self-portrait. Uh, and the portrait of Sir Walter Scott, which were engraved by William Walker in 1826, which you see on either side of the doorway. Now, uh, because Rayburn is, is, is based in Edinburgh and he's conscious of his, uh, his separation, his distance from London, one, one letter to David Wilkie, he refers to himself feeling like, I need, I need information about London, I feel like I'm beyond the Cape of Good Hope. Prince and his relationship with the printmakers are terribly important for furthering his reputation. And in fact, our first knowledge and record of, of Rayburn in, in, let's say for the sake of argument, in London is through the uh, publication and distribution of a line engraving of Robert Dundas, Lord Arniston, who is uh, who was the um, preeminent judge in Scotland at this date, and whose whose engraving is further down this uh, on my right, uh, and this was engraved. Uh, he had died. It was an obituary plate. Uh, many of Rayburn's the, the, the commissioning of these uh, engraving of these copper plates was done after a famous or noted sitter had died. Rayburn had done the portrait, and it was in a way of uh, celebrating and marking this sitter's achievement amongst their friends and admirers. And these prints, uh, after they'd been, engraved, they'd been engraved, were then published, in, usually in Edinburgh and in London, where they could be bought by friends and admirers. And the other thing to note is that these, these prints, which are fairly limited editions, we don't know the exact numbers, but we're probably talking 50 to 100 impressions, were then uh, framed. In London, prints were bought by connoisseurs and collectors for the portfolio, uh, building up these huge collections of prints. There was a great craze, uh, for, for, and also there was a fashionable interest as well, particularly for portraits of, um, printed portraits of women. But in Edinburgh, these prints after portraits were framed in uh, rosewood or maple uh, frames and with gilt slips made by the Edinburgh frame makers who were also the print publishers, to be displayed in, in the houses in Edinburgh and in further afield in Scotland. So this was, so in a sense, they were publicly displayed and very much to be seen as part of friendship and, and a, a social esteem and sociability. So there are some, uh, uh, there are some extremely important uh, uh, aspects to be learned from the, the print trade. It's also fair to say that there were some very famous sitters to Rayburn, including Sir Walter Scott, and you see one of the, the uh, uh, I've already referred to the stipple engraving here. There's also the earlier mezzotint of 1809, after the, seat, the famous seated portrait of Sir Walter Scott, which is at uh, the original by Rayburn, of which is now at Bowhill in the Borders. This, that painting, when it was exhibited at the Royal Academy, caused a lot of comment, and then Scott, of course, already famous as a poet, um, and then the Metzitin, when it was engraved by Charles Turner uh, the following year, that also had a wide sale. In addition, Neil Gow, the great, um, the great uh, fiddler and uh, uh, music, uh, composer, uh, his famous uh, seated portrait uh, showing him with the fiddle, which is in the Scottish National Portrait Gallery's collection, that was also engraved. That engraving is not on show in this exhibition. 
And that uh, was sold very widely in London in its colored state, unusually. All these prints here are monochrome to capitalize on Neil Gow's incredible celebrity in, in London as, um, and the great craze for Scottish uh, folk music and country dancing. So I hope that just gives you some idea of the, of the, the significance of these, these wonderful uh, engravings after Rayburn's uh, oil portraiture. Thank you, Stephen. We've got time for one more question. Do we have one more question? Perhaps we've exhausted the topic. Oh, one more question. Excellent. Enjoy your talk immensely, and I just wonder the present state of the studio in York Place. Um, isn't it Standard Life or somebody like that, that that has the ownership of the building? And is there not a case to be made for recreating or making a, a, a Rayburn place out of it again? It's a, it's a, would be a wonderful scenario in the future for 32 York Place, which uh, to be a to have uh, some form of uh, commemoration or display or contemporary portrait practice. Um, uh, but at the moment, it's, it was in fact fascinatingly, it remained an artist studio. The building was designed and built by Rayburn himself, and he moved there in 1798. And uh, after his bankruptcy, he had to sell it in 1808, and then he leased it until his death in 1823. But after his death, it was occupied and used by artists including Colvin Smith, the mid-Victorian portraitist up until the 1870s, then by Sir George Reed, the portraitist and president of the Royal Scottish Academy, and also it was used by Stanley Kirster in the 20th century. And the Royal Scottish Academy used it for, uh, as a studio for artists from the early 1960s up until the mid-1970s. At that point, it, uh, the owners uh, sold it, and it has since then has been in uh, commercial... Um, it's been let out on a commercial basis to various companies, uh, and at the moment it, uh, let out, it's let out to a media company. Um, what is very remarkable about the studio is that uh, there have been various alterations, and the gallery, for instance, the top-lit gallery where Rayburn showed his paintings has disappeared for offices. But the studio space amazingly survives with Rayburn's extraordinary window for his studio light north-facing, facing out over to the Firth of Forth and over to Fife, the window extended above the lintel up to about 20 feet in height. And the amazingly, the original shutters, the complex system of shutters, appear to have survived. They're currently painted up. Um, and this is, gives us terribly important evidence for the, this great mystery of how Rayburn got those light effects within his paintings, this, these great shafts of top light that come down and illuminate his sitters, which is such a hallmark of Rayburn's style. Um, but as I say, the, the, the studio is, is used as, and has been used for commercial premises as office premises, um, but uh, there, there, at the moment there are no plans to, uh, to alter that state, but I think that would really depend on, uh, you know, on public interest uh, in the future. Well, um, I think we do have to wrap it up now. I do hope you look at the exhibition, which does, of course, include objects from the studio, or certainly objects attributed to Rayburn, including the chair and an easel over here, and I think the teapot. It's a teapot. So uh, there are some lovely things here, but uh, before you go, can we thank Dr. Stephen Lloyd for what I think was a fascinating talk today. Thank you very much, Stephen.